1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com Let's get this dinner party started
2: Hola socios, hola equipo My name is
1: Neil
0: I'm Liam This is John Nurnberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA
1: Maury Field near Brisbane in Queensland
0: Edinburgh Barcelona And I'm a socio I'm a socio I'm a socio of The Big Interview Hi there, I'm Liam from Edinburgh And I'm a socio because not only do you get to hear the world's top players speaking about their time on and off the park, you also get to hear Graham try and slip in a reference about Aberdeen in every show. Keep up the good word, guys. Enjoy the World
2: Cup. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Big Interview at the World Cup. My name is Neil White, and in an airport in Krasnodar, awaiting a flight to Moscow, is Graham Hunter. Graham, where precisely are you and the Spain team heading? Yeah, it's uh, it's over to
0: Moscow a day early. I'm not quite sure why. Nobody's shared with us the reason for not flying on what we like to call here in the tournament, match day minus one. I guess, speculatively, some of the elements would be that Krasnodar has been sweltering under 45 degree heat. Moscow's not quite that mad. It's patently an extra test that you're playing the host. Spain have a very bad record of, never beating World Cup hosts when they play them during tournament. It's Russia in Moscow in the last 16 that adds, a, what would you say, a certain frisson, a certain tension, maybe getting accustomed to the surroundings in the capital, the extra traffic and whatever. Maybe all these elements come together to add to Spain, deciding to go, what is it, about sort of 15, 16 hours early. At any rate, that's what we're doing heading to the Russian capital with the Lushniki Stadium on our minds.
2: And the knockouts are beckoning not just for Spain and Russia, but for everyone. So instead of looking forward or enjoying what's in front of us, let's look back at matters resolved these past couple of days, starting with the departed champions, Germany. Now, they took a bit of a bat ring after they lost to South Korea, and there were stories about a split in the camp along the famous Kroos-Boateng fault line. But to me... Across three games, they weren't miles away. They had chances in all those games to win. What do you think the reasons for their exit are? Look,
0: let me turn the telescope round a little bit to start with. One of the things I think we learn to try and avoid is having an instantly complete analysis and say, it was this. I think that's okay. If If you're forced to on television, you have to come up with snapshots, then very good, that's your living. One thing to say is, Bloody hell, don't be world champion. Italy, um, depart the group as world champions. Spain, depart the group as world champions. France, depart the group the next time the trophy comes out after being world champions, now Germany. So there's a goddamn lesson for you kids. Don't ever become world champion at football. Secondly, I, I want to put something that I said at the beginning of the tournament back in focus again. I'm not certain that Manuel Neuer carried a whole heap of blame for the goals conceded or for Germany's failure. But I genuinely thought that Joachim Löw made an error. It, it would not You could never call it inexplicable. Neuer has been more than a keeper. He's been a lieutenant. He's been iconic. There have been times when he's been number one in the world. There have even been times when he's looked unbeatable. But those times are long gone. And I would say two things. Number one, When you're out for nearly a year at that age, having previously, in my judgment, honestly not any longer looked top four, top five keepers in the world. And then two, you ignore the fact that Marc-Andre Ter Stegen, not that he's fashionable, nor that it's Barcelona he plays for. He's been in the form of his life. Young, hungry, very much motivated by being number one. I think you build your first cornerstone of a World Cup defence by making a better decision than Joachim Love did. Beyond that, uh, flipping hell, Neil, who would be a manager? Was it wise for Özil and Gundogan to do what they did with the Turkish leader Erdogan? You'd say no, and how the hell can Joachim Löw be blamed for that? He can't. Was it divisive to have half the country, the majority of the politicians in Germany, Stefan Effenberg with the loudest voice saying, kick these two out of the squad? Did that help? Did that help their performances? Did it help unify the squad? Patently not. Then I like your argument. I, having watched the, the German games, you know, there was a there was a hint of... I really didn't like the way they celebrated the World Cup back home in Berlin four years ago when they did that gaucho walk and they, they, they bent down and showed all the Argentinians walk like this, small and dwarf like, and we walked tall and proud. I didn't like that. So, would I rather Germany as a football nation was still in the World Cup? Yes, I would, because they give us an awful lot to admire and like and to learn from. Was there a bit of schadenfreude? See what I did there. About the departure, from my part, yes, there was. When you say they weren't that far away, I'm bound to agree with you. Little details, the peril of screwing up in your first game. Of your argument, I would say the first part, the first third of of the, the matches... The first third of their group. It, it, when they lost to Mexico, they looked bedraggled. They looked easy. They looked a soft underbelly. They looked very easy to counterpunch against. Really, honestly, they should or they could have lost that first game by by more. I think it puts it in some context what what Spain managed to do: lose the first game and come back, even through grating nerves and Honduras. Not the not the hardest second game in the world in 2010, when Spain become the first team ever to lose that first game and go on and win the title. Timo Werner, were enough players ready to wrestle and pull Germany through, no matter what? Doing things like Kruse did to equalise his mistake when he gave away uh, the goal against Sweden and, and come up with that last minute goal. Were enough players in that team or that squad? mentally or physically ready to do extraordinary things to get them through an extremist? No. Does that pertain to joke and Love? Does it pertain to squad unity? Does it pertain to small details and pieces of luck during games? Does it pertain to the majority of the, the Germany players having had ultra-demanding long seasons? It, it, every player come here at the end of a season, but with the majority of these German players... They've had the goodness squeezed out of them all season at leading clubs right until the last minute. And therefore, that old joke we used to tell at school when you say, I, I say, I see, I see. What's the secret of good comedy? And the other person says, I don't know. What is this? your timing? You shout across them. And um, in World Cups, timing is a very, very big element. Who goes on a run, who wakes up, during the group stage, who wakes up after the group stage, or like Germany, who doesn't really wake up at all.
2: Yeah, I I want to go back to the very start of your response there when you were mentioning the fact that, you know, who would be world champion. I mean, that stat is remarkable now. Since France won in 98, all but one champion has gone out in the group stages. And I just wonder if that's a rogue stat or if if it's something looking at... I mean, the example you had with Neuer over to Stegen. How do you drop a world champion? You know, how do you drop Manuel Neuer?
0: This one, I think, was easy and clear. Manuel Neuer, at that age, could have accepted being told, you've been out for a year, mate. It's just not your time this time. That's at one end of the spectrum. The other part of the spectrum, for example, and I think this answers to your call, you know very well that in 2012, after the final against Italy, Chavi says to Dalbosky, in fact, the day before the final, that's me, boss. I've had it. And Del Bosque says, are you crazy? We're going to win again in Brazil. We're going to the, when you say the home of football, you know, the, they call them the Pentacampeons, the the national team which has dominated world football, and I include Germany in that description. And therefore, Xavi is seduced by Del Bosque into staying on, you know not just two years, but into a period whereby if everything isn't functioning around him, he can look a little bit as if athleticism because of the pain and he was suffering terrible pain um, in and around his ankle. That, that seemed to be something that people had lost faith in. And so Chavi is persuaded to stay against his better judgment, stays, plays pretty well in the first game, sets up the goal and is ruthlessly dropped for no good reason in the second game, and Spain can't keep the ball, can't play against Chile, and go out. So when you look at the spectrum, I think that's the end of the spectrum whereby a coach says, okay, leader, friend, you know, esteemed colleague, if you want to retire, I'm not going to bend your arm behind your back. And then you get generations, if I'm not wrong, France's world champion, and the themes developing here, take a hugely incapacitated, wounded Zidane to Japan and Korea, and it simply doesn't happen for him. And if I'm not wrong, he plays bandaged up, and you can see that timing, again, is wrong, is against him. And that judgment thing that you've talked about, but how does a coach say to a leader or to several generational leaders, your time was 12, 18, 24 months ago? Yeah, that's hard. I I see this
2: as another example
0: yeah, Casillas needed to be dropped in, in 2014. That's that's right. Maybe not on the evidence of the season preceding in that I thought up until the final of the Champions League where he makes an error for Atleti's goal, Iker is fighting hard, is is showing that his sort of leave me alone, I'm idiosyncratic, I'm me, can be something that helps him react. And then in the tournament, the evidence of your eyes in training was that Pepe Reina should have played from match one. yes. You're right, he's another example. And I think if you look at how Italy played, which I guess was South Africa, the age factor, players who felt a little bit frazzled, no longer, not hunger sated, but no longer driven, no longer at exactly that right age. I think the age and how many seasons you've slogged through summer after summer of either a Euro, a Confederations, a World Cup, and then a club tour, these these you could do carbon dating
2: yeah that cycle looks very different in 2018 than it did in you know the 60s and the 70s
0: yeah there's no question about that they're highly tuned they're they're almost using cryogenics they get all the privileges and all the wealth you could ask for but boy we squeeze every last drop of diligence out of them and Eventually, that that frazzles people.
2: Okay. Out of Germany's group came the swashbuckling Mexicans. And I think you have to be impressed by Sweden, right? I mean, what a response to that crushing defeat by Germany to get through from them. A friend of the podcast, Lee Rodden, pointed out that this group of players contains six of the team that won the 2015 UEFA Under-21 Championships. And I just thought time and again, we seem to be seeing this kind of generational kind of graduation
0: I go way back to remembering uh, one of my first interviews with Frank Lampard and I said, England really don't have a tournament mentality. And he said, you're right, I absolutely agree. I said, don't you value what you learned with the under-21s? And he bit my hand off immediately that that idea about living together um, abroad for a period in the summer where understandings are formed that break down club barriers on a training pitch – but also friendships or loyalties are formed that can, that don't always, but can haul you through the big version of the tournament in due course. Really, honestly, seriously, whether I genuinely see Sweden as a threat to the last four, no. Um, just in pure talent, I don't. But having watched two of their games, what I saw was complete uh, unity uh, a clarity on how they play. Uh, still, to my eye, is not a particularly complicated side. They have one, I think, pretty interesting. I'd go as far as to say, um, maybe even exceptional footballer. Um, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily pay giant amounts of money to watch them all the time. But did they merit it? And is it impressive that they came back in that way to? to thump Mexico. You called them swashbuckling. Well, they they pretty much only buckled, didn't they, against um, Sweden. Um, It was, to me, something of a shock result. I didn't think Mexico would be pushed around so or make so many errors. And therefore, look, kudos to Sweden. Happy for Sweden, yes. And that element of what's the gap now? You know, what's the gap between a really well-organised, really athletic, really unified group of players, pfft, say from, I don't know, whether it be Sweden or, or Denmark or Serbia or whatever, compared to uh, Brazil and Argentina, France, Spain, Italy, Holland not here, Italy not here. That gap, where when you said a name of, a, of an international team and you automatically mentally had it in the old league table that you used to get in the shoot magazine where you took the little sort of pegs out and you slotted them into their little ducats and you you built up a mental hierarchy of where teams were well what got Tiago very excited today in the press conference was one of the things I really dislike about our business whereby he was asked a question you Look, you guys have been very auto-critical. You've been very self-critical about your games, but you hate it when the press um, join in and get critical. Why is it you hate that so much? And Tiago gave a brilliant answer and a pugnacious answer too. And one of the things he pointed out was he wasn't actually asking for rah-rah-rah um, cheerleading. What he said was, "You always list the negatives over the positives. You always have portents of doom if things aren't quite as they were expected to be, and you never listen to our argument about how difficult it is to win these games." And I think he's right. Each of the leading nations, and whether you, let's let's just gently set aside Croatia for the moment. But if if people were looking for favourites, they'd have probably gone to Germany, Brazil, maybe France might have mentioned Spain and Germany or Brazil look dominant, but have had to work their butts off for it. France's victories have been by the slimmest margin. Argentina have clawed their way through. And when players now say to us, it's really hard to break down a very organised international side at a tournament in the heat if they are well-trained and athletic. And I think it's right. And therefore the gap, um, Sweden represent the fact that the gap can be narrowed. And particularly if the elite squads are, are relying on players who are knackered then, and, and taking time to find their rhythm, then, then what you get is an interesting shot uh, at well-organised teams, particularly, if, as you point out, if, they, if they've come through as a group from under-19s, under-21s.
2: Okay, after the break, Brazil.
0: Even on a budget...
2: After the drama of Germany's exit, Brazil made it through without too much fuss. Although I don't know if they've looked like World Cup winners yet across 90 minutes. I wanted to ask you about Philippe Coutinho. You watched his gradual integration into the Barcelona team this season after his January move from Liverpool. He's 26, so I guess this is his peak World Cup and he's playing like it. Is he someone you can see making the difference in knockout games?
0: Well, right now, what I'm enjoying very much indeed is is the way in which he's trying to take responsibility for the performances. In terms of offering for the ball, what he does with the ball, clearly he's nicking goals. He looks much more robust than, say, Neymar does. Um, there might be a talent gap between the two of them. But Coutinho looks to me like the, the Brazilian players that I always used to um, admire a really tough natured, wants the ball, wants to get up. He's not messy, but like Messi, when he's fouled, he wants to get the ball and get up and get on with it again. During the qualification, he often played on the right for this coach. And that glorious goal he scored here, the first one he scored, um, was coming in off the left onto his right. So there's some positional variety there for Tice to to be able to use. I do, I do what you said appeals to me a lot in that physically, mentally, in terms of confidence, he seems to feel that this is his big opportunity. He's playing, it might be a cheap word to use, but he is playing with a bit of a swagger. But he also is playing as if he's in the zone, as if he really feels that everything, all the component parts are clicking for him himself. I think he's one of two, I mean, not only two, but two stand stand-up players for Brazil would be him and the keeper. Whether Alisson has had to do, Utterly marvellous things throughout the three games. Maybe not. But what he gives you is whenever he's called into action, particularly if it happens to be close range, is a great feeling of solidity, a great feeling of a guy, again like Coutinho, who feels like he's in command. Now, I like that. And I I take issue with you a little bit. I think Brazil do look like World Cup winners right now. They've barely conceded. It's been seat of the pants a little bit. But I thought that they... I thought they'd give Serbia a bit of a boxing the other day. I didn't really think it was very close. They are looking reasonably good at keeping the ball. I'm sad for Marcelo. I like him very much as an individual. He has his mad moments, but again, the the number one bumper criterion is who would you pay to watch? Well, I'd pay to watch him. I've no idea. I haven't had time to check on how his recuperation is, but you know, I'm, I'm not that much of a fan of footballers in tears, but when, when he looked so tearful going off, it didn't make me feel optimistic about how quickly we'll see him again. And that that makes me a little bit sad. And right now, you know, there's, there's more to come. There, there, I can't believe that there won't be more goals from Gabriel Jesus or from Neymar. And, and as such, uh, for the rest, for the other teams, I fear that Brazil are looking like that typical World Cup Brazil where they... They gain momentum, and where they have depth of squad, and again they look well trained and they look confident. So right now, I think they 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 paint as stick-on favourites. And yes, like you, it, it feels as if Coutinho himself believes he's in a special moment and he's worth watching.
2: You mentioned the tension with a small team between Neymar and and Coutinho. I mean, Neymar, as always, is definitely the sort of poster boy of the Brazil team and to some degree of the World Cup. But in in almost every game, Coutinho has probably had a bigger influence on the outcome. And Neymar's already huge reputation for simulation has incredibly been embellished during this World Cup, something I didn't think was was possible. Do you think there's a negativity surrounding Neymar that maybe even affects him?
0: I, I really like learning football. It's the basic thing that gets you and me and Martin and the socials excited His talent, achievement, people who can seize the moment, the players of destiny. But I really enjoy watching footballers learn and mature and change. And honestly, I haven't seen that enough in Neymar for my taste. Very often um, when he was at Barcelona, I wrote a little bit defensively about him because listen frankly he was too often having the shit kicked out of him and I didn't like the fact that people would only pinpoint the fact that he is immature on the pitch and will cry and whine and and roll around when when in actual fact what he's trying to do is is equalised things in his own mind because he doesn't feel that the referee's protecting him. And an in instance is there, but given that we want talent to flourish and given that we know what the laws are that referees are supposed to apply, I will stand up and use either radio or television or a written format plus podcasts to defend a guy like him if he's having the shit kicked out of him or if he's been provoked all the time. But from the manner in which he left Barcelona, he was perfectly entitled to go. He had a buyout clause. But from the manner in which he left there to the way in which he's behaved at Paris Saint-Germain until now, the balance has gone the other way. It's as if he feels the, the world owes him love or the world owes him ultra protection or the world owes him a great World Cup. And I'd rather he learned and watched the greats and said, I see what has to happen here. I have to take things by the scruff of the neck. Now, the other day, and I'm sorry, uh, listeners, I forget which game. The other day, you could see the back of his socks with stud holes in them. Now, that's where I, I want referees to be fearless about saying, there's a red card for you, son. There's a red card now. Because much of so though, I like a bit of aggression and physical power in football. And I do like little battles being fought out between players. And I don't mind a bit of equalising going on because that's the way I was brought up. But I don't want to see stud holes in the back of Neymar's socks. I don't. And therefore, I'm going to be temperate in, in criticism, Neil. I understand your point of view. I understand it's a worldwide phenomenon of people laughing at Neymar or taking the piss out of him. And I think he's, he's got the mix wrong personally in this tournament. But I saw that, these assaults on him. And I have some degree of sympathy for what he goes through time after time. And it's when he takes matters into his own hand by trying to to draw the referee's attention to, look how hard my life is, rather than ensuring that he wins a game himself, which he has the capacity to do. That's where I think the balance of approbation and, you know, dislike would would go towards the positive.
2: Okay, we're going to let Graham catch his plane there. Tomorrow we'll get a flavour of Moscow where Spain face Russia and the on Sunday. Until then, I'll remind you that there is money off razors for you at trygillette.com forward slash interview. Free beer awaits you at beer52.com forward slash big. That's the word beer, the number 52, dot com forward slash big. And after the music you're about to hear, which as always comes from Beer Jacket, you'll hear Graham telling you how you can support the podcast as we gear up for a new season of Big Interviews. For now, that's our show. Thanks for listening.
0: I really hope you're enjoying these World Cup shows. We've got huge plans for next season, but we do need your help to make them happen. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, a member, to join us to support us. You'll get an extra big interview every month plus lots of other bonus content. Last season our members got nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Dini and Roberto Di Matteo. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Do it now please.